Well, we could celebrate last Sunday night. Anybody there at Celebration Sunday? A few people? Yeah, wasn't that incredible? Let's say we had, what, seven baptisms? We had, what, $30,000 or more given for the health care clinic? Man, I like that. And, what, 467 shoeboxes given for Operation Christmas Child. I think we did pretty good. Isn't that awesome? We should, and we need to thank all the people that put this on. So let me give them a hand here. Yeah. Good stuff. Several weeks ago, my wife and I just, re- just returned from the most perfect vacation in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado. As we hiked along the trails, we were simply captivated by God's spectacular creation and the most breathtaking of views. It was just, wow, we're just in heaven. Being in Colorado again just reminded me of that special time in 1978. I was at a Young Life retreat in the mountains. When the good news of the gospel finally clicked in my mind and my heart, it was a watershed moment. I remember it was December, and it was really cold. I was outside, and I think the chill factor was something like 30 degrees below zero. I mean, it was freezing cold. But it didn't matter, because I felt God's warmth. He just, it was so personal. He was so real. And I realized at that time that he loved this prodigal, which I was, Enough to bring me out of my sin and and thrust me into a new life filled with meaning, with purpose, and so much grace. With that grace, I received so much more than I could ever deserve. Let's go to John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 16. For this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent his son into the world not to judge the world but to save the world through him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. In my very personal encounter with God, back in Colorado, it was so wonderful to know that God didn't just love the world broadly, but he loved me personally, singled me out. And I was now free because my God, the emotional God, really, I knew that he loved me all the way. At that point, I no longer saw God as a bit detached and maybe distant, but he was near and close with me and for me. Wow. Well, this morning, I want us to take a look at one scene recorded in Luke's gospel that really illustrates God's deep and emotional love for those lost, those prodigals, those wandering, and even for those that are still choosing to not accept his grace and love. Luke 13, starting with verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees said to him, Get away from here if you want to live. Herod Antipas wants to kill you. 
Jesus replied, go tell that fox that I will keep on casting out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And the third day I will accomplish my purpose. Yes, today, tomorrow, and the next day I must proceed on my way. For it wouldn't do for a prophet of God to be killed except in Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones God's messengers. How often I have wanted to gather your children together as a hen protects her chicks beneath her wings. But you wouldn't let me. And now look, your house is abandoned. And you will never see me again until you say, Blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, there is a lot going on in this passage, and I want to kind of take you there. So I want you to kind of live this out and, and try to imagine yourself as part of the scene, part of the audience. So let's, first let's talk about the Pharisees a bit. Now, I don't know about you, but the little I knew about the Bible until I came to faith. I knew the Pharisees were the bad guys, right? And they were after Jesus and always like attacking him personally, insulting him. They wanted him out because he was a threat to their status and way of life. But yet in this context, that, I'm not sure that's the case. In fact, it seems like some of the Pharisees are actually going out of the way. They want to protect them. They want to keep them out of harm's way. And they seem genuinely concerned for his welfare at this point. Now, things are going to change later. We also know from John's gospel, we know about Nicodemus, and he's a Pharisee, and he seems to get along fine with Jesus. In fact, he's curious about his message and wants to know more. We also know that Pharisees regularly address Jesus as teacher which is a sign of respect. Jesus was also a regular dinner guest in the home of prominent Pharisees. In fact, if you read a little bit further ahead in Luke's gospel, you'll find that he's at a dinner party with a Pharisee. In the book of Acts, you're going to find Pharisees uh, coming into the early church, being a part of that. So there's more than meets the eye about Pharisees, right? Now, of course, later on, we're going to hear more if you continue through the gospel and yes, there will be some significant opposition. And, but that's another story for another time. And let's say a few words about Herod Antipas. Well, Herod is really confused. He cannot figure out what's going on. Because you see, he's already had John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. He's already had him beheaded. He didn't really like his message too much. John the Baptist was the chief prophet of the day. The whole Israel really liked his message, but not Herod. So he's out. Herod had him taken out of the picture. But he's wondering, scratching his head, thinking, wow, what did I do? Is this Jesus resurrected? Is Jesus the resurrection of John the Baptist? It's kind of a crazy thought, but he's kind of wondering that. Listen to Listen to Jesus' response. On the one hand, it's sort of like he's in denial, like, I'm not really worried about that guy. He says, you know, I'm, I'm into this deliverance ministry and healing ministry, 
I'm going to do this today and tomorrow, and I'm going to accomplish my purpose, and this sort of thing. Unless I think the message that he wants to go back to Herod is, hey, I'm on task. I'm doing things my way. I'm in charge here. I'm going to keep doing the Father's will. And also the word that he used when he describes Herod, he says he's a fox. Well, sometimes nowadays when we use that term, that's actually kind of a compliment. That person is sort of sly, a little shrewd, pretty sharp. Back in the day, that meant, well, you're just a fox. You're just kind of a pest. You're a nuisance. Not even, we want to even bother with you. Not really anything. If, if, if he was trying to say that Herod was, you know, a tough guy, someone to reckon with, someone to, you know, be careful of, he would call him a lion. But he calls him a fox. In other words, he's just, he's just really a pest. I don't want to mess with the guy. I don't have time for that. I got things to do. And that's, uh, that's sort of a challenge in Herod's face because Herod is the ruler of Galilee and Perea. These are the territories where both John the Baptist and now Jesus are doing their ministry. And then one other thing about Herod, if you fast forward a bit in Luke's gospel, when you go to the trial of Jesus, at one point you may have heard that the soldiers put on a, a royal robe on Jesus in a sign of contempt and, 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 and mocking him his claim to be the king of the Jews. Who's behind that? That's Herod. That's Herod Antipas. So that kind of gives you a little flavor for what's going on and, and who are they referring to. So Herod is a serious threat, but Jesus has a different response. If you'll notice on your screens, you're going to see uh, uh, one of the pastors took some photos from uh, while they were in Jerusalem, and uh, they're at the Mount of Olives. So they're looking down on the city, the old city of Jerusalem. And uh, if you look at that, that big dome, that gold dome on the rock, that's, uh, that's where the Temple Mount is. That's where the Jewish Temple of Jesus' day stood at that very spot. So think about that if you're trying to put yourself in the scene about uh, Jesus' comments about Jerusalem. So just keep that in mind. Now let's talk about Jerusalem and, and talk about his, his thoughts. And again, if you're trying to pick your, put yourself in the context of being one of those people that's hanging around Jesus or at least in the crowds, boy, this is a downer message. He says, well, the prophets die here, and I'm a prophet, and this is, I'm gonna just going to do what the other prophets have always done. They come to Jerusalem, they give the message of judgment and grace, and then off of their heads. And Jesus says, I'm going to do the same thing. So I'm thinking if you're hanging around Jesus, like, man, I don't, I don't know if I like this very much. And there's a similar account at a different time when um, the disciples hear this and, and Thomas says, well, yeah, I'm going to go with you to Jerusalem. We'll die there too. It's like, yeah, great. So, and, and Jerusalem is supposed to be this place where you worship God. It's the temple. It's the center of worship. And yet, it's got a legacy of killing the very people who are helping us to worship God. Jesus is part of that, that whole scene. That's not very encouraging. So he's got that going on. And, and then he transitions and he's got this really deep emotional response. I mean, this is really wild. And let's talk about this a little bit. Think about the mess, think about the, uh, the hearers. 
So these are Pharisees, right? And we've heard from this very place. We've heard it other times about Pharisees. One of the prayers they prayed was, thank God I'm not a woman. Okay, some of you remember that? We're here. And what kind of figures of speech does Jesus use here? He uses some feminine figures of speech. Thinking, man, the Pharisees probably don't like that at all. Like, what is this? What's going on here? They're used to kind of giving this toxic message to, to the women. The women are, are less than. They're marginalized. They're to be ignored and not to mess with. What do you think Jesus' women disciples are doing? There's lots of them. In Luke 8, we're told there's a lot of women following Jesus and, and seeking to, to follow him and obey him like disciples do. And they're just eating up his message. They're going, did I, did I hear right? Is this guy telling me that I matter? That I matter to God? I never heard that before, or at least not around these Pharisees. They're going, wow, I'm important. I'm significant. So I get this, I get this as I'm trying to match myself in the scene. I'm, these women, man, they're, they're cheering Jesus on. Keep going. I love this. Keep talking. You got my attention. So I think that Jesus is really breaking some barriers here. There's, some, there's a cultural conversation going on here. There's some correcting of some distorted views about God, about men and women that are in this message. So I, that's, that's how I see it. And you have Jesus talking about, saying that, hey, I, I'm feeling the same kind of feelings that, that a, a mother hen is going to feel for their offspring. I mean, that, that's really a nurturing, tendering, tender, tender kind of expressions here. And I was, I was thinking of, this example, and I was trying to think recently, when have I uh, seen or experienced something like this? And we, when we were in Colorado, from a, a, a little safe distance, thankfully, maybe at the back of the auditorium here, I saw um, a mother bear and a couple of her cubs. And I'm, I'm taking it all in. I'm also thinking I'm glad I got a few feet here. <laughs> I got some separation because I don't know what that mother's going to do if she... If a, if, if a person comes up and gets in that space, I'm probably at history. But it was really cool to see those, those bears. They were having a good time, and there was some family kind of interaction going on. It was really sweet. So when I was reading this passage, I was kind of thinking about that. Also, if you go to verse 34, this, this isn't a one-time feeling, a one-time expression. What does Jesus say? He says, how often? So it's a regular expression of the hearts, this deep, this deep feeling, this deep compassion that, that Jesus is expressing here. And Jesus is revealing God as one who is emotional. In fact, regularly is emotional and, and regularly expresses feelings. So Jesus here is lamenting and grieving over Jerusalem. And a few chapters later in Luke's gospel, you're going to see that Jesus actually begins to weep as he approaches his city. Same city that he knows is going to ultimately reject him. So who is Jesus being emotional about? He's, he's being emotional about, he's weeping for the same people that are rejecting him and his message. Wow. 
for prodigals <laughs> like some of us. Later, while he's dying on the cross, what does he blurt out? But, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. That's powerful. That, that gets to me. And, and if you can go on into the Old Testament. Go back a little bit. Rewind. The prophet Ezekiel says, Do you think that I'd like to see wicked people die? Says the sovereign Lord. Of course not. I want to turn them from their wicked ways and live. And then this is in chapter 18, a few verses later, the same thing. It says bluntly, I don't want you to die, says the sovereign Lord. Turn back and live. That's what our God says. Isn't that good news? Isn't it good to hear that? You know, from this pulpit, we've, we've heard... Uh, before that, you know, in our culture, there's a popular myth going around, right? That the Old Testament God is depicted as a God of wrath and judgment. And the New Testament God is a God of love and everything, you know, it's all, everything's fine. And that's far from the truth. That's a mis complete misunderstanding of what the scriptures teach about God. And here, Jesus makes some very revolutionary statements about God's nurturing love for his people and actually, his thoughts, uh, his expressions, uh, we see actually them rooted in the Psalms. At least, at least a half a dozen uh, cases where God is depicted as caring for and protecting the Jewish people in the shadow of his wings. And then Jesus is also being prophetic in this passage. He's telling the Pharisees that he's, he's going to come back to Jerusalem. He's going to come to the temple in particular, this time he's going to come in a triumphal way. And if we were going to fast forward, we think of what uh, Palm Sunday is all about. And, and what does he do there? He comes on a donkey and he's received by his adoring fans and he's the blessed one or the king. Come to save his people. And then also in this passage, it says something about the, the house of God being abandoned. And, and what's that about? And I think a couple of thoughts are here. One is we know that after Jesus' death and resurrection, his earthly ministry is over, we know the temple's going to be destroyed. So it's going to be done away with. All we guys, you know, the Dome of the Rock, there's really, in that one whale, there's really nothing left. We also know that um, we, we, it's been talked about earlier here. Uh, when he went into the temple to clean house, Okay, he was in the, the, the court of the Gentiles where the Gentiles are supposed to be worshiping God, but there's no room because you got money changers doing their thing. You know, greed's taking over. and So there's no room. So what does Jesus do? He knocks over the tables. He kicks out the money changers and says, hey, that's enough's enough. We, this needs to be a place of worship. And that, that was really the Gentile space to worship in the temple. So until he kind of cleaned house, yeah, God's presence probably wasn't there. So a couple of thoughts there. So what do we learn? What do we learn? What's the takeaway? Our God loves deeply, even those who reject him. The God that Jesus revealed weeps. I like that. Some of those from my generation 
We were raised by fathers who primarily saw themselves as providers, not necessarily as nurturers, certainly not feelers. You know what that was. Our dads were survivors. Uh, many had experienced both the trials and horrors of combat, World War II, the challenges of growing up in the Great Depression. You know, I remember trying to ask my dad about some of his experience in this, and uh, he was in the South Pacific. And uh, he just didn't want to talk about it because he saw his, his buddies just killed in the most horrific of ways. And uh, he didn't see himself as a hero at all. He was, just, he was lucky to be alive, but the heroes were still there in his mind. So he had, he'd seen a lot. He had, he had, and, and just growing up, just barely having enough to eat. You know, I think they went out maybe two weeks at a time without any meat except maybe squirrels <laughs> that they on the farm. And then they had one cousin who would bring in who was, it was uh, well off. And so then they would uh, bring them some meat. But uh, just, it was a hard time. And, and those folks just had to suck it up. So many of us didn't see our dads express much emotion. Maybe except some anger now and then. Mom was the one who offered support, love, and nurture, and she expressed her feelings and asked, remember, you know, my mom asking, asking how your day went and wanting to know, let's talk about it, and that touchy-feely stuff. I know that's not true for everybody, but for some of us, that was our personal experience growing up. And I was trying to remember when I saw my dad cry, and I had to it took a while to, to have a memory of that and, and to think back. And I remember it was, uh, I was in college at the time, a young adult, and his mom had just passed. And I saw these tears like, wow, <laughs> I'd never seen that before. You know, I think, too, some of us from that time period growing up, we saw God kind of like our daddies, and, and, and we didn't see God being very emotional either, except we knew that he could show some anger now and then. Just like our daddies, we thought God must kind of be unfeeling as well. Maybe some of us, many of us, maybe a lot of us have experienced an absence of unhealthy emotion in our families of origin. I was reminded of this in a famous scene from Anne of Green Gables when Matthew gently rebukes his sister as they're discussing how to raise a spirited young girl named Anne. And says, uh, we've got no call to raise her as cheerless as we was. How many of you can relate to this idea that, that God is that way, that God is cheerless, unapproachable, detached, unfeeling, uncaring? About a month ago, a guest presenter came and, and shared how transparently he had had such a hard, hard, hard time trusting God because he still carried with him some, some deep baggage, painful emotional scars of being raised by an emotional uh, alcoholic father who randomly lashed out at him in anger, but in real hurtful ways, unhealthy ways, dirty, unbridled anger. But then later he he says that he was able to understand about God's anger, which is a clean anger, and it's, and it's rooted in, in compassion. It's a healthy kind of expression. 
Well, Scripture really teaches us that our God has the capacity to experience and exhibit a, a full range of, of emotional expressions. We've, we've talked about a couple of those just now, and, and I'll add some more. So things like grief, things like jealousy, revenge, graciousness, mercy. We talked about the anger piece. Joy, compassion, love. We like that. Sadness, and that might be expressed in tears and even weeping. The bottom line is, and this might be a little uncomfortable for some of us guys, but God is actually a feeler. So we're going to have to sort of deal with that. And to, from today's mass, message, we're going to learn that God even has the capacity to feel like a, a nurturing mother hen. So how's that for breaking some stereotypes? You never know what you're going to learn in Scripture. And, and the point here is that the God that Jesus revealed is not without feelings. The God that Jesus revealed is emotional. And once again, the God that Jesus revealed weeps. So what do we do with this? We'll read one more verse for you. From Genesis 1, 27. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So, all right, practically, what do we do? And I think it's perfectly okay for both women and men to express their feelings and imitate the creator God who gave us those feelings in the first place. Why not? Jesus weeps. Those who love God can weep. There's a, there's a number of scriptural references to or there's a very appropriate time for the people of God to weep or to show significant emotion. Now, some of you, some of us may feel like, I don't really know how to express feelings. That's kind of weird, or I don't know where to start. Or we just might feel stuck because our survival, our mechanisms for coping have been to stuff it. And so we might feel stuffed, we might feel wounded, we might feel broken, we might just feel a need for healing and restoration. If that's you today, don't give up. Don't throw in the towel. We have some wonderful care ministries to help you um, work through some of those things and, and, and support groups. We've got things like R3, Divorce Care, Grief Share, Single Moms, Life Coaching. You're not alone, so your church can help. If that's not enough, we've got a we even have a list of Christian counselors in the area who are super dedicated folks. And, and uh, you know, help is out there and readily available if you feel like you're kind of stuck in your ability to express your God-given emotions. I'll go back to my daddy. Uh, earlier I mentioned my, my daddy's lack of emotional expression. Somehow, at some point, things all changed. I'm not sure exactly when and how, but at some point as a young adult, my daddy started hugging me. And it was awesome. It was great. I like that. And then when, he, when we had three children and, and he, was, he had a, took on a new role as a grandfather, man, the guy was hysterical. 
He was, I just like, who is this guy? He was so emotionally expressive and he was just a riot. I remember one Christmas when he put on some funny looking hat for the grandkids and he was just so silly and so goofy and the kids loved it. They just were all over that. And I remember watching from, you know, a few feet away and just loving it, just taking it all in and going, wow, that was so cool. It was so fun. I also thinking about in recent years, our own adult family gatherings. And some of you remember the movie uh, back, my, my Big Fat Greek Wedding. Now, our family's not Greek, but man, we can really relate to that movie because when we get together now, we're extremely emotional. We tell each other repeatedly that we love each other. We're loud. We're obnoxious. We're really silly and goofy. It's great. And I miss my siblings back in Texas. Can't wait to be with them again. It's fun. Another thing we can do, we can express our feelings in fellowship and worship. So some of us can be more expressive. It's, it's okay to show our feelings when we fellowship together. In certain ethnic traditions, and you get together, I mean, you need to expect a lot of hugs and holy kisses and all that kind of stuff. And I remember our last church back in College Station, Texas, uh, years, ago, years ago. And I remember trying to leave a service and trying to get to our car in the parking lot. And we just had to slow down and say it's going to be at least 15 minutes. Because every person you said goodbye to on the way to the car gave you a big hug. And you had to do that. I mean, it was just kind of the ritual. And you know what? It was pretty cool. It was pretty awesome. And I actually missed that. That was fun. I'm thankful that uh, one of the elders here who's, who's gotten to know me a little bit, uh, he realizes that uh, he's figured out I'm, I'm kind of really a hugger. And so he, he knows and responds appropriately. He's a hugger too. So that's really cool. So one way I'll know that if I didn't put everybody to sleep today, that if I get a few more hugs this week, I'll know that you're paying attention. So anyway, I'm a firm believer that just by being in safe Christian community, that we can express ourselves a little more easily, right? It's okay. I've visited, what, I've had 25 group visits already and another one this week for our life groups. And it's fun. I love when people are getting into their message. They're laughing. People are just, you know, telling stories or there's something that's really sad, and, and, and it's just okay to, to show some tears and, and, and you know, and, and, and just give each other a big hug or to pray for each other or lay hands on each other, whatever the response needs to be. But in a safe community, people know you, know your name, you can do that. So I would encourage you, if you're not in a place of, of, of regular, uh, more intimate fellowship, go ahead and do that. And, and we want to really open our life groups for you. We want to keep out what we call an empty chair because... You matter. You matter to God. And, and in this church, every person matters. That's, that's the key part of our vision. So that's, that's the place for that. Well, I'm going to share a few more things about emotional expressions that I just think were kind of fun and interesting. and tells you how I see Scripture. I don't see it as boring and, uh, and just, uh, you know, academic exercise. There's emotions to it. There's some fun. So I was thinking back to the Old Testament one time when... Uh, this woman named Hannah was praying, and uh, she was really longing for, for uh, she, was, she couldn't have any children, and she was just praying like crazy. And the priest who's watching her pray, 
comes up to her afterwards with all this incredible amount of empathy and says, woman, you're drunk. What's your problem? Yeah, right. Um, and then there's, there's some, when the early church is gathering together in Jerusalem, one of their first worship gatherings, some people in the crowd make a similar accusation. They say, man, these people are just drunk. This isn't for real. This is phony. And I love what Peter says, the, the leader of the, the service says, uh, these people are not drunk, as some of you are assuming. Nine o'clock in the morning is much too early for that. No, what you see was predicted long ago by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit upon all people. And I think reading between the lines, he's sort of saying, and we might just get a little excited. We might show a little emotion because God is at work in our midst doing things that has never happened in the history of the world. And so we're just going to take it all in and just let it happen. Second Peter 3.9, we're men Reminded that God's desire is that none should perish. Paul reminds the church to devote themselves to prayer, especially for opportunities to share the message of good news. So I think it's okay to get emotional as you're, as you're praying for people. Some of us are hurting for folks that are still on the way, those other prodigals who have not yet responded to God's message of grace. And, uh, you know, as we're praying for those folks, it's okay to get, maybe some of us too are, are just feeling a little maybe angry or, or detached about that. And ask God to increase the capacity of our heart to really have warmth when we, and, and, and emotion as we pray for those folks. Well, in your handout, I've got like six questions or ideas, some things that you can do to, uh, to just kind of think through this message more at home, on your own, and in a life group setting. But you could also um, work through these, uh, like in, if you're keeping a personal journal, it'd be great to write down some thoughts and reflect on these, especially like starting with the first question. Uh, you could talk some of these things over with a trusted friend, a prayer partner, or a life coach. Well, the last comment, question uh, number six, says that uh, you should thank and praise God for being an emotional God and for creating us with the capacity to express our emotions in fellowship and worship. So we're actually going to do that right now. So let's pray. Lord God, we love the fact that you are not distant, that you are not detached, that you are not unfeeling. We also thank you, Lord, that you're not just angry at us all the time, but you have a whole range of emotions. Even weeping for those who have not yet responded to your offer of grace, forgiveness, peace, and abundant life. Lord, we thank you for being emotional about us. Thank you that you have been relentless in pursuing us. Finally, Lord, would you give us a fresh and feeling of your Holy Spirit, enable us to express the emotions that you have given us in a healthy way as we're in fellowship and, and worship and prayer, especially for those who are still lost and trying to find their way.